Welcome to Through the Keyhole. I'm your humble host, Jeremy Key. On this episode of The Keyhole, I had the distinct pleasure to speak with Dr. James Hansick. Dr. Hansick is the former American Solidarity Party candidate for the Office of Governor in California. What is the American Solidarity Party, you may be asking? The ASP is a centrist third party founded in 2011 in reaction to the wide unpopularity of America's traditional two-party system. As you will hear, rather than pledging fealty to a particular ideology, the ASP aims only for providing for, quote, the common good. Somehow, we eventually got to talking about nuclear weapons. This was an interesting interview. If you enjoy this episode, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. Please also consider leaving a review wherever you found us. It helps us to grow the channel. You can find me on Twitter at Jeremy A. Key, as well as at The Keyhole, both spelled K-E-E. Here's my interview with Dr. James Hansick. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome to the Keyhole Podcast, through the Keyhole, technically. My name is Jeremy, and I'm your humble host. I have the privilege today of being joined with by Mr. James Hannock. He is a candidate for the American Solidarity Party, which is a, I guess they are a third party uh, in our two-party system, but they're a rather interesting one. Um, for people like me who have become disillusioned uh, by the left-right dichotomy, they present a lot of um, a lot of interesting possibilities. And so, James, welcome to my show. Thanks, Jeremy, very much for inviting me. I welcome this as an opportunity to spread the word about the American Solidarity Party. As you say, we're, we're neither right nor left, neither liberal nor conservative. I think we're progressive in the best sense, the real sense. Mm-hmm. We're focused on advancing the common good. Yeah. And the common good is a, a tall order, so there are some key principles that we uh, invoke to advance the common good. The first is the principle of solidarity, American Solidarity Party. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of ways of explaining that principle, but I think the quickest and most incisive is to say that the first measure of justice in any society is how that society treats the most vulnerable. And the principle of subsidiarity is is also something that is very expansive, but the way I would present it is that in working for the common good, we want to begin at the beginning, begin with the grassroots, begin begin really with the family and then the neighborhood. And then the locale might be a village, a town, township, even a city. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that we begin at the beginning, we know that there's some problems that we can't solve at that level. So we go to the state level, the regional level, the national level, and 
and in due time, the international level, but we begin at the beginning. And uh, a third principle that directs us towards the, the common good is what I call the principle of economic democracy. Some people in the party refer to it as the principle of ownership. And what economic democracy says is that we should have the widest possible ownership of homes, of land, of uh, all the ways that we build things, all the ways that we distribute things, of, of utilities, uh, the widest possible ownership that we can have. And looking at those three principles, I think we can at least discover ways of concretely uh, advocating for the common good. And when we talk about the common good, since a number of people do, probably the first distinctions to, to, to recognize that the common good is not the utilitarian good. Uh, it's not that we're talking the language of John Stuart Mill. On the utilitarian view, uh, the idea is you maximize uh, individual preference satisfaction. That's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> that... The idea is that uh, Abel wants this and Baker wants that and Charlie wants some third thing. And go down the alphabet of the constituencies, and everyone wants something. So what we're going to do is to maximize individual preference satisfaction. Now, Mill might say that makes the most people as happy as possible. I think at most what it could give us is a, a general feeling of contentment. But... With the utilitarian idea of the common good, what you really have is a kind of majoritarianism. And you could imagine a decidedly imaginary world in which there are 100 people and 10 belong to race A and 90 belong to race B. And the 90 would actually prefer to have a lot of household help. <laughs> Someone to carry out the garbage and so forth and so on. And if the 90 can train the 10 to be content enough with their lot, then the common good would involve, well, guess what? The maximization of the majority and the... Um, marginalizing of, of the minority. And, and that's that's one obvious problem. We might call that the objection from justice to the utilitarian notion of the common good for us. American Solidarity Party, the common good includes the flourishing, really, not just the contentment, but the flourishing of each and every human being. And if someone says, why should every human being count? Well, the answer is, for us, every human being has a fundamental, non-negotiable dignity. 
and uh, we we have to foster that dignity. In no case can we undercut that dignity. Yeah, yeah, and you know it. The common good is is uh, a phrase that we seem to be hearing a lot of these days, and and everyone seems to have a different definition of it. I particularly like yours. How do you how do you sell that? Uh, because we you know we we seem to live in particularly utilitarian times. Um, you know, a, a person tends to to be viewed by others, and a person tends to view themselves even based on what they're doing, what they're producing, what they're contributing. You're, it sounds like you're describing the common good more as, as in, in a sense of you, you are valuable strictly because you exist. So how do you, how do you sell that, that sort of, uh, that sort of approach in, to a very economic, uh, a very economically minded, transactional uh, sort of society that we live in. Well, I think oftentimes it proves to be a hard sell, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> too often it's no sale at all. Right. But uh, I would think that the better approach is to look to the individual and look to what the individual cares about Mm. and then suggest that what the individual cares about, the rest of us care about as well. And then go from the individual to the close circle of friends that the individual has and Mm. to, to the family. And again, work from the ground up, begin at the beginning. Uh, If people are challenged uh, by a question like, uh, what's your net value as a person? If we can challenge them in that way, they they might say, well, come on, I, I can't tell you my net economic value. Sure. Uh, or even if I could, it would be something different in a couple of weeks, <laughs> given fluidity of the market and so forth. Sure. So if we, we begin with, with each person, one person at a time, and it could well be that there's not enough time <laughs> to succeed yeah. uh, in, in terms of electoral politics, but that's where we should begin, in my view. I um, yeah. I I think that uh, I think that that would be the most logical place to begin. Uh, you know, we live in we live in impatient times as well. Everybody wants what they want exactly when they want it, and so I think it's kind of funny that you mentioned, or there may not be time. You know, who knows? Um, well, I so I'm really glad that you opened up with uh, with the the centrality of the common good, um, you know, being at like the heart of the American Solidarity Party. And so before we get uh, before we get too far down that path, I'd like to briefly redirect us and just tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What is your affiliation with ASP? 
how did you get involved with them? And we can go from there. Well, Jimmy, I wonder, you're, you're what I would call a younger fella. Thanks. But, but, uh, <laughs> but maybe you're not too young to remember the Mary Tyler Moore show. Uh, I'm old enough to remember watching it with my parents. Um, uh, yeah, rerun. So I'm, I'm familiar with it. All right. Well, there was a, a fellow on that show that was the news broadcaster, mm -hmm. a hard news broadcaster. Yeah. But every once in a while, there wouldn't be a hard news, uh, uh, not enough hard news to, to really fill up the time. And then he'd say, well, now, a little bit about me. <laughs> <laughs> At which point, Lou Grant and Tyler Moore wins. Yeah. And figure a way to cut him off. But he'd at least get started and say, it all began in a small Texas radio station. <laughs> yeah, I recall. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I, I was uh, born and raised in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I can show you what Michigan looks like, but <laughs> <laughs> it would distract a lot of people. At any rate, uh, a lot of people have heard of Ann Arbor, Michigan, University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. But I want to tell, tell our listeners that it's really Grand Rapids. That's the Athens of the Midwest. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Well, they won't be able to verify that claim anyway. <laughs> well, let me tell you, it's true. Yeah. So uh, I was born and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I attended high school and uh, junior high school in Grand Rapids. And then I went to, in hopes of learning some Spanish. Okay. Uh, St. Mary's University in in San Antonio, Texas. Okay. And that's where I met my wife. And her name is not Rose, okay. even though she's from San Antonio. <laughs> her name is Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, I was only there for two years and graduated and and then we came uh, to work for an outfit called uh, uh, Migrant Ministry, which was a project of the United uh, Churches of, of Michigan uh, and the Diocese of Saginaw, Michigan. And did that for a time. And during that period, uh, we opened a Catholic worker hospitality house. Mm -hmm. And then uh, my alternative service period, this was the Vietnam War, was over. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to school. And uh, I went to Michigan State, and they kept going. <laughs> going. Yeah. And finally, after <clears throat> five and a half, six years, I finished up a PhD in philosophy, and then I managed to mingle a job. It was sheer serendipity. Uh, a lot of people on the job market know about these one-year openings. 
but it turned out to last 40 years in <laughs> Los Angeles, California. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's see, five years ago, never used the word retired. It's not biblical. I redirected. <laughs> and uh, I continued to work as I had for decades already with the New Oxford Review. And I do uh, uh, some blogging with them. And I also do a, a podcast like you. And uh, uh, then I got more and more involved with the Solidarity Party. It really started about the time you did. Okay. It, with uh, the 2016 election, yeah. we were wondering out loud with the editor of the New Oxford Review, what could we possibly do for, for a number of uh, election cycles at the presidential level I, I hadn't voted because I was sharply opposed to both parties. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I like to say, don't vote, it just encourages them. <laughs> yes, I agree. Along came the American Solidarity Party, and I guess I sort of heard about it, but the editor had really heard about it, Peter mm-hmm. Lee, and so we voted for Mike Maturin, and uh, well, now we're getting up to Getting up to eight years, almost eight years, and we've done a lot of work with the party, and, and that brings us to the, the present day. Okay. All right. And so, so how did you, so did you come across the American Solidarity Party by uh, this Peter Bree? Well, Peter mentioned that the party actually had a candidate. Mm -hmm. And I still very much think that as often as possible, we have to have candidates. Without candidates, we're a a party in formation. Right. Or maybe even a a political action committee. We are a party. Yeah. It's just that it's really tough to be a candidate and uh, well, okay, so it's it's tough. I mean, in some ways it's tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on what your focus is, it doesn't have to be very hard at all. But we're, we're just getting started in terms of third parties. If you were to compare and contrast with the Greens or the Libertarians, They've got 30 years on us already. Right. And they're not competitive at a state level or national level after 30 years. Yeah. Uh, so there's no reason to expect that we're going to, to succeed overnight. Sure. But there's every reason for us to get into it with whatever we've got. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, so I, I wrestle, I wrestle with the the notion of of a time frame, um, a time frame for becoming successful. However, you measure that, whether it's 
winning an election or winning a number of elections or a certain percentage of the vote, however you measure that. I wrestle with the idea of a time frame because when it comes to politics, so I don't know if I if I mentioned this to you in my initial email to you, but I used to um, I used to work in public policy at the state level here in Texas. Um, officially, I was an office administrator, but I eventually got into doing um, some higher education research, and I I was a writer for a little while. Um, in fact, a couple of years ago. I saw some of the research that I had done uh, about higher education costs here in Texas. I saw some of my research was actually used in legislation. Like I, I, I would recognize that graph anywhere and that was definitely mine. So like, that's kind of cool. Um, but it, in that time, I, uh, I developed a, I developed a cynicism uh, just towards politics in general, because, you know, I saw enough, of I saw enough of the uh, of the caricatures of modern politics. I witnessed enough of it with my own two eyes to just be kind of like, you know what? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take care of my own, and that's gonna be good enough for me. And so, um, so I wrestle with this idea of a timetable just because it seems like things are continuing to go from bad to worse. Um just in culture and politics and, and economics, it just seems like, it seems like every step we're taking is the wrong step to varying degrees, a kind of a fatalistic approach. Um, so, so where do I want to go with that? So what, what is the vision then with that being said, like talking to someone like me, he just has kind of a dour, political view what is what is the mission statement or the vision of the american solidarity party we talked about common good um what does asp want to see america turn into or turn back to tell me a bit about that that's a big assignment you just gave me, Jeremy. Um, I'll begin at the beginning. Uh, things seem to go from bad to worse. Here in California, yesterday, our new attorney general ruled that people looking for the state of California cannot ask for funding from the state of California to attend any event in Ohio. Why? Yeah, what have they done? Because Ohio, those rascals, Ohio signed into law, Governor DeWine, a law that uh, recognized broadly speaking, religious freedom, that is, the freedom to object to measures that, that seemed to people to be flatly contradictory to their most closely held religious beliefs. Huh. Well, if you're going to have a bill like that in Ohio, <laughs> you can't expect 
the state of California yeah. to fund anyone in, in, in government employment. To yeah. go to Ohio, you just can't expect that. Well, I posted that for uh, our California Solidarity Party website and entitled it, More Nonsense on Stilts. <laughs> More Nonsense on Stilts. Yeah. And that's what it is. Now, uh, next point, or one of the next points, um, what are we looking for? Uh, let's say over a 10-year period. How about that? Yeah. I think over a 10-year period, we'd be looking for uh, recognition as a distinct independent party uh, sharply distinct from Democrats, from Republicans, from Greens, and from Libertarians. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways we'd get that recognition is by having at least a few people in elected office. And I think our best bet is uh, state congressional districts. Mm -hmm. And we have somebody who's already done that. Of course, it was in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I feel like you set that punchline up specifically, but well, well done. <laughs> I say if you see two dots, connect them. Yep. At agreed. any rate, it was in Ohio, and he's very likely going to run in, in the next round. Mm -hmm. And we we already have someone <clears throat> in Ohio who's on a city commission. Okay. Now, it's true he was appointed, but uh, he was appointed because he is who he is. And I imagine that when it comes time to have the election, mm -hmm. he will no longer be appointed. <laughs> and we've had someone who's been a, a mayor in Wisconsin. And I, I think in 10 years, we, we might very well be a recognized... Uh, at least by people who follow politics, a recognized, very serious, very distinctive third party. Yeah, that would be the ten-year plan. And ten years is a long time. A lot can happen in ten years. Uh, a long time. You know about the October surprise. <laughs> <laughs> there were yeah. ten October surprises in the yeah. next ten years. Now, you, you had more in, in your line of inquiry. What, what would we expect America to become? There is an ism. And like most isms, it's an awkward kind of a word. Economism. And economism is, is the view that in any public policy, in any serious political endeavor, the economic factor is first and foremost. Uh, sometimes you get this at the pop level, as in, it's the economy, stupid. But the economism that I'm referring to is central to the Republican Party and equally central 
to the, the Democratic Party. They might have, and oftentimes do have, uh, opposing ways of pursuing what they take to be the ultimate measurable human good, mm-hmm. economic prosperity. Uh, but that's their focus. But our focus is is really the human person. The economy is made for man. Man isn't made for the, the crunching of numbers. And while we sure are animals, we sure need our, our physical resources, we surely do. We're, we're rational animals, and, and we can look beyond just that. And we also have to recognize that as rational animals, and I'm borrowing here from Alistair McIntyre, mm-hmm. the philosopher, yeah. we're dependent rational animals. And the idea of being dependent is shocking to the, the czars of economism and the denizens of an economistic, I told you it was not the word, an economistic yeah. polity. Uh, being dependent is, is is horrific, but but it's not because because our dependency is our mutualism. We each of us need each other. From conception until natural death, we each of us need each other, and uh, we we have to embrace that and build on it and recognize it. So what what we're looking for. Is, is something grand, really. Yeah. We're looking for a displacement of the central pillar of contemporary politics, mm. this emphasis on economy. And we want to remove that with an emphasis on a, an ongoing, serious, shared reflection on the dignity of the human person and what flows from that. And one of the things that certainly flows from that is that the human person can flourish only in communities. Mm. Uh, talk a lot about aggregates. I don't think anybody <laughs> ever flourished in an aggregate. <laughs> <laughs> we have to flourish in communities. Yeah. And so we want that to be first and foremost in, in the political consciousness of the day. Mm. Yeah. That's you know, I was reading over, I was reviewing the platform for American Solidarity Party. Yeah, it's and a pretty long platform. Isn't it is, it, it is. It's, it's, I've, I took several pages of notes. Um, there, about, there are a number of people who say that the platform is too comprehensive a platform. <laughs> and if anybody, say a guy named Jeremy, would read the whole thing, you'd find at least six things he disagreed with. And everybody says, yeah, that's right. But, but look, you need two thirds majority to to have a plank in the platform, and so yeah. far everything there has gotten two thirds majority. And then one of the party uh, discussions led to, well, at least let's have a set of principles. And so now there are a set of principles, and I think you can get them if you send a space on two thirds of a page. Yeah. And lo and behold, a major author of that set of principles was the fellow that's. I'm the city council in Ohio. Imagine that. <laughs> yes. Ooh, <laughs> and, uh, and then we have also, I think, something like uh, 
the four the four guiding principles mm -hmm. and that's all that one needs to subscribe to in order to be in, in fundamental sympathy with the party yeah and that's sanctity of life and the possibility of peace and the need for justice and a recognition that yeah we are in a ecological crisis yeah yeah and that's you know that's what really that's what stands out to me about the the party is that there is there is a uh, a very prominent uh there is a very prominent emphasis on community on on um you know trying to think locally trying to solve problems locally rather than just everything coming from you know the halls of congress and and um that that really distinguishes it to me like to the average voter you know i'm nobody um i know what i like and i know what i don't like um but i think that, that would be a good a good segue into my next question because i want to know how does the american solidarity party how does it differ from the republicans and how does it differ from the Democrats, because, you know, reading through the platform, I see, I see bits and pieces of both parties. So, it, you know, it, it definitely seems like a centrist party, but how would you say, like, in what specific ways, maybe, would you say that it differs from either party? I mentioned that I was a teacher and I, I taught philosophy and for many years, I focused heavily on, on what was called the name of the course, Contemporary Moral Problems. I taught other courses, but, but that was the focus. Mm -hmm. More and more became evident to me that contemporary moral problems lead to questions really of what Aristotle called first philosophy and, and today is called metaphysics. Mm -hmm. And the metaphysics that matters most in contemporary moral problems is the metaphysics of the person, what it is to be a person. And I think I've already suggested that but there's another axiom in metaphysics, uh, the metaphysics certainly of Aristotle and Plato and St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, and it's the axiom that whatever is, to the extent that it is, whatever is real, to the extent that it is real, is good. Mm -hmm. Now, I suppose because of that, we're all of us alert to what's artificial. <laughs> <laughs> right. But how does this take us back from metaphysics to, to Democrats and Republicans in our platform? Uh, there really is a Democratic Party and there really is a Republican Party. And there are elements of it that correspond to deep truths about the human person and human society. Sure. And so those are good. 
And so we ought to expect to find some good there. And there's no reason to be surprised. So it's not as if the American Solidarity Party unannounced fell from the skies. <laughs> By no means. Were you to track our intellectual roots, we, we go back certainly uh, before the contemporary alignments of Republicans and Democrats in the United States. We go back really to the efforts in post-World War II Europe to try to reconstruct whole nations that have been pulled apart by the struggle between fascism and communism. And it was widely recognized that there has to be something better than that. And from that, among other things, uh, the, the movement of Christian democracy was launched in Europe. There had been antecedents already in the 30s, but it was seriously launched in Europe and in Germany, in Italy, uh, certainly in parts of Spain, in Central America and Latin America as well. And our roots are really in Christian democracy. And one of the foremost proponents of Christian democracy was a philosopher named Jacques Maritain, and Maritain was a key figure in the building of the United Nations, most specifically in the forming of the United Nations Declaration on Universal Human Rights. And, and that's, I think, to this day, the greatest contribution that the United Nations has made. And so we, we have this idea that we have a tradition, we have elements that are constructive in contemporary politics, but we also have fundamental distortions. Hmm. And economism is one of those distortions. And a, a terribly misguided understanding the common good is another one of those distortions. And that misguided apprehension understanding of the common good is linked to a failure to recognize the dignity of the human person. Right now, California has so thoroughly embraced abortion that for some time it no longer reports abortion statistics. And we have efforts which are always denied, efforts of a very constructive sort to offer women who are abortion-minded alternatives to abortion. Mm -hmm. uh, generically, they're called crisis pregnancy centers. Right. And today's Vice President of America, Kamala Harris, uh, together with Javier Becerra, who is, is now also in federal government, they did their very best to shut down the crisis pregnancy centers. They did their very best. What was one strategy? Well, free information requires that. You post in your center, and we'll check to see if it's there, in large font, uh, a full account of where abortion-minded clients could go to have an abortion. And you have this in your centers. Mm -hmm. Parallel, analogy, of course, every analogy wins, but 
I think this one doesn't make that much. It would be like requiring at uh, a gun buyback uh, that there be signs posted about where you could buy uh, assault rifles. <laughs> yes, this is a gun buyback, but in order yeah. to have full disclosure, in order to have a sanctioned buyback, freedom of speech, you have to have uh, something that tells people where they can buy assault rifles. Mm-hmm. Well, not just that, but I'm, I'm thinking of California. Uh, in California, something called PAS, at every acronym we ought to stop, <laughs> something called Physician Assisted Suicide. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've had it in place for, I think, now two years. It was so carefully introduced. Of course, only Democrats voted for it and only Republicans voted against it. But anything that Republicans vote against doesn't really make any difference in California because we have a one-party system, not a two-party system. There are many safeguards, oh, so many safeguards. Two years later, bill has been passed, signed by the governor, those celebrated safeguards have been removed and they're understood now to be restrictions, unnecessary restrictions. So in in California, we have the most blatant disregard for the weakest among us. And what the party wants to do is to make central the idea, the reality that the human person is central to our political efforts. And that's going to be a tough struggle. I think there's something to be said for the view that that's been the struggle of Western civilization. And it's something you wake up every day and you work at some more. Now, I'm pretty sure I drifted from your question, but <laughs> it was a pretty open question. It was. But, you know, push me more. Please do. I don't think that I was aware that physician-assisted suicide was legal in California. In that way, for a couple of years, and now they're listing it up. So, and you know, one of the problems... Even now, with physician-assisted suicide, is that some patients can't really give their consent. Right. So in order not to violate their rights, they ought not to be required to give consent. I mean, how, how this does... This is as they say, Jeremy, this is as they say, gaining traction, this view. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, one question that I find myself asking pretty much every person I've interviewed so far, it seems to be a recurring theme. How did we get here? How did we get to the point? Because, you know, I, I was aware of, of physician-assisted suicide and like the Scandinavian countries. And, you know, I, I don't know. Netherlands. <laughs> Netherlands. That's right. Um, Belgium. Yes. And it's, now, now because of this consent thing, uh, it's available for children. And that's, that's 
where I was, that's where I was going is because I've, I've heard more and more over the past few years, very troubling uh, cases coming out of those Scandinavian countries of, of clients who are, you know, 15, 16, 17, who are opting for this because they're clinically depressed and they just, they don't see how, how that's ever going to lift. And they just can't, they can't imagine a life going through that kind of depression. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a licensed professional counselor. So I hear that and I immediately think like, please stop. We can fix this. I promise you we can, but then it comes down to the issue. Like you say, of consent is a 15, 16, 17 year old. Are they truly capable of, of making that kind of decision? Are they truly capable of thinking all the way through this? And, and it just, it boggles my mind that it's that, that, that we, we knew what the slippery slope was and we still insisted on stepping onto it. Decided to make a resort out of it. There's a resort. A resort. The ski resort. Okay, well, that was the show, ladies and gentlemen. No, I'm kidding. Um, well, that, we have, we have, that is amazing. We have Texans coming to California so that they can secure an abortion. But, but now I want to shift gears here. Please. Something else we have in California. We have uh, the University of California, the UC system, mm-hmm. of which I think we're inordinately proud. And the flagship of the UC system is the University of California at Berkeley. Oh, yeah, UC Berkeley. Right. Now, UC Berkeley does many things. But one of the things that it does is it anchors something called the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. Which laboratory started in the coldest of the cold years of the Cold War as a a research tank for nuclear weapons? Now, the Cold War ebbs and flows and I think it's starting to build up again seriously. And the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory is still there for us, while tethered to UC Berkeley. Now, what what does the Lawrence Livermore Lab do? It's the premier national site for the development of nuclear warfare technology. We do have fewer bombs, but the bombs we have are much, much more lethal than the bombs we've had in the past. Sure. And you can't get from one point to the other without developing research and nuclear weaponry. And where is that done? Right here in the state of California. And what else? This is all on their website, the Livermore Lab. What else do they do? Their word, they... Mind, as in M-I-N-D, 
as they mined your nuclear weapons, they mined existing nuclear stockpiles, which they refer to as existing nuclear stockpiles. Now, we're talking about our weapons of mass destruction. Uh, were they to be used, the consequences would be horrific, almost unimaginable. And what is the state of California committed to? Ongoing research in order to further develop them and mind their stockpiles. Now, no Democrat and no Republican has anything to say about this in public. But what it means is we are willing, if the threat be sufficient, to kill tens of millions of innocent people. But now there's a haunting parallel here with, with abortion. Haunting parallel. In the United States, we've already said, yes, it's okay to kill 60 million plus unborn children. Yeah. And well, we're willing to kill many more than that, including children that are unborn that would die in a nuclear attack. Right. And we have become so accustomed to it that it's no longer mentioned even. So in the California recall election, which just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago, again and again and again, I tried to couple those two issues. Uh, we are neither left nor right. We yeah. are neither liberal nor conservative. We are wholly committed to the common good, and the common good includes the good of each and every human being. And it was always and everywhere wrong intentionally to kill a human being yeah. or intentionally prepared to be able to kill an innocent human being. But since the time of the Cold War, we've been ready to do that when it comes to nuclear weapons. Yeah. And it's almost impossible for us to imagine not having that deterrent. And I think for most people, say in a state like California, it's almost impossible to think of not having abortion as an alternative. After all, it really counts is sexual freedom. And you can't have sexual freedom if you don't have abortion. Ergo, you must have abortion. But that's certainly a diminished view of what the human person is. Thank God for our sexuality. Uh, Thank God that we are animals. We wouldn't be if we were animals. Right. (laughs) Something else, rocks or angels, but that would be us anyway. We are who we are. And yet, there's a dignity that is transcending sexuality, a dignity that transcends uh, material goods. And unless we have our eyes focused on that, we will have more of the same. And, and I oftentimes use the analogy of what we're dealing with really here, and we have been for some centuries, is a game. 
Hmm. And the stakes get higher and higher and higher. And now with climate change, there's kind of a hmm, an external monitor of the game that we've been playing. Yeah. Uh, nature is watching and weeping. Yeah, and at the moment, Mother Nature is kind of kicking our butts with COVID and the variants and just when we think, yeah, we've we've got it figured out, we got it, and then it's like new variant, shut everything down, back to the back to square one. one. Delta. Yeah, exactly. You know the the um, the quip I guess I like to make is uh, what happens when we get to the Omega variants. Like, where do we go from that one? I don't I don't want to I don't want to get to the end of the Greek alphabets with these variants because I don't don't want to think about what would be waiting for us there. Yeah. Um, oh, that's what cheerful note, Jeremy. <laughs> Where should we direct our conversation? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Christian wakes up and some of the Christians who wake up say, uh, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. And, and <laughs> if we're going to rejoice and be glad, it's because we're rejoicing that, that we're here and that God has given us a mission and that God gives us the grace to pursue that mission. Yeah. And part of the mission is telling the truth. Here in California, you have to excuse me on this note. No, please. Here in California, well, we've got many Californias, really, but a whole lot of California is busy about the business of, of entertaining itself to death. Yeah. Who is the single biggest contributor to uh, Gavin Newsom's uh, campaign? Single biggest contributor. The CEO of Netflix. Really? Yes. That center aware. of culture, that vanguard of the civic spirit. Yeah. Uh, the greatest contributor to citizen cocooning. <laughs> right? Yeah. And give it to Gavin. Give it to Gavin. Huh. Uh, I was not aware of that. Yep. <sighs> <laughs> I mean, see that this is this is why I said earlier that I I just I, I have a very detached uh, relationship with politics because it's it's just you know there was so there was a there was a tweet actually from the. American Solidarity Party's uh, account earlier today talking about the concept of everything is political. And, you know, they, they pointed out that there is a positive way of looking at it and a negative way of looking at it. Um, the positive way is kind of what you've outlined here, which is we are inherently political in the sense that we're all trying to figure out how to live together, work together. Um, but then there's also the negative side, which is everything is political in the sense of everything has to serve an ideological purpose. Um, and in American culture, American society, we tend more toward the, the latter than the former. And so, 
yeah, you get this, you get this guy like Newsom. I don't know everything about him, but again, everything is political, so you can't escape it. So I know a few things about him. And his single biggest contributor was the CEO of Netflix, the 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 single the single most influential uh, entertainment outlet currently on the scene, particularly again after COVID, because like you say, it was it was the cocooning, and there was Netflix waiting. Like, well, we got you covered. Um, but just that intermingling of of entertainment with politics and you know now football is political and you know sports are political i was i was talking to someone uh i was having a conversation on social media uh yesterday i think it was just saying like yeah you know i'd I'd love to move out to colorado one day because it's a beautiful state and i'm an outdoors kind of guy and that turned political because they said well actually you know Colorado is sufficiently blue. Why don't you look at Idaho and Montana? Because they're not quite there yet. The assumption being that if you want to move to Colorado, you must be a liberal, which I'm not. Um, so you can't even talk about mundane things like wanting to relocate without having the political being brought in as a factor. And like that astounded me because it's like I'm I'm not like I'm not moving as to be a political missionary i'm moving because i like mountains and i like outdoors and i like having four distinct seasons rather than just mm. summer and an occasional cold front so you did them in grand rapids i'll tell you <laughs> i've heard i've heard that michigan is a lovely state um i'd like to visit one day but it just the politis the politicization i think is the right way of saying it making everything political um, it, I, I just keep coming back to this question. How did we get here? How did we get here? What, what was the, what was the left? No pun intended. What was the left turn we took when we should have gone right? What would you, what would you say? Like, if you had to say, this was the mistake that we made, what would you say it was? There was a, philosophical uh, position uh, it borders ethics and metaphysics and again it's a position of Thomas Aquinas mm-hmm. it's, it's called the unity of the virtues mm-hmm. and I'm going to get to, to try to answer your question momentarily sure. but the idea is uh the good ultimately is one and every virtue is a strength of character that helps us to pursue the good but if the good is ultimately one then the virtues ultimately form a a unity now the flip of that would be insofar as we're defective in any one virtue we will be defective in other virtues. And a corollary of that is uh, any one wrong left turn keeps company with many other wrong <laughs> left turns. That's fair. Uh, 
So I, I say that thinking that nonetheless, the left turns that really, really, uh, are really, really strikingly <laughs> wrong left turns. Although I know that only in, in hindsight. And I do think that, that slavery is America's original sin. I do think that's the case. Yeah. Uh, but that slavery, again, is linked with economism. Uh, yeah. This is the way at least uh, agricultural states can work financially. And so this is the way it must be. So... Slavery is the most hideous of the wrong turns, wrong left turns, but it is in a context of economism, which we lots of times don't see because, in fact, we have to have a functioning economy. That's true. There's no such thing as a functioning system of slavery, but there is a functioning system of economy. So we're less apt to look closely at it. I would say those are two wrong turns. Yeah. And I think another is uh, we are, and this goes back to to the Old Testament, we are a violent people. Yeah. We really are. Uh, we have recourse to violence in many ways again and again and again, but with the development of, of nuclear weapons, uh, there is a, a change, a shift in kind, not just in degree. And to a great extent, we live under a, a delusion. I think one of the most uh, extraordinary things that's happened over the course of my lifetime is that there has not been a nuclear war. Hmm. But looking at it analytically, I think the odds are increasing all the time that there will be a nuclear war. Yeah. So our ongoing veering to the long left turn of violence has become more and more glaringly, more and more glaringly uh, obvious. So that that's my bag of miserable left turns. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah one one left turn does seem to be accompanied by by many others. I mean, typically to to take a wrong turn, you've either already taken a wrong turn or it'll lead to another. So, yeah, we are a violent nation, aren't we? It's if we want to hear a little more philosophy. There's this idea that uh, no set of moral principles can be consistent. That uh, ultimately there are moral blind alleys. Mm -hmm. And one is a moral blind alley when no matter what one does next, it has to be something morally wrong. Mm Now, there are huge books on constitutional law and 
in a lot of the test cases, the, the question is, is this part of the Constitution really consistent with that part of the Constitution? Mm. Lots of times. Uh, well, move from Constitution to uh, more principles. There is a view, uh, number one, not only that the virtues are united, but number two, the moral principles find themselves in conflict. And if the moral principles themselves are in conflict, then from time to time we'll find ourselves in a moral blind alley. And you are in a moral blind alley when no matter what you do, you will do something wrong because the only options available to you are wrong choices. Now, I think that a lot of us without articulating the, the concepts hold to something like that. We lots of times say, and this can be innocuous. Well, I guess I have to choose the lesser of two evils. In fact, if something is evil, you ought not to choose it at all. But when you talk about a moral blind alley, you need to make a distinction between an absolute moral blind alley and a conditional moral blind alley. Mm. Uh, you're looking for absolute moral blind alleys you might start by looking at the Greek tragedies. God, this is a horrible mess. In, in Spanish, there's a term desmadre, which can be used in different ways, but rough translation, God, this is a horrible mess. <laughs> but, but even there, and I can go back to that, even there, I think that what we actually find is that we're in a blind alley because we already did something that was wrong and we need to have done it at the time. We needn't have done it at the time, but we did. Mm -hmm. Now we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. And I think that uh, the, the Czech uh, writer Vaclav Havel oh, yeah. he had the, like the best response to that. He, he said, at least you can tell the truth. At least you can tell the truth. Uh, you can always do that. Uh, so I think one of the things the American Solidarity Party can do is try always to tell the truth. And you know, the, the, tr the truth hurts, but it's the truth that frees us. So I think that's what we have to do. Now, I, I probably viewed not so much to the left or to the right, but back into philosophy, but, but that's my home base, really. Sure. So. Sure. I mean, you, I agree. Uh, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned Havel. I'm going to, I'll see your Havel and raise you a Solzhenitsyn. Um, yes. To, to open up his Harvard address. Like the, yes. these, these words are just, they're etched into my soul from the first time I read them. He, you know, he, he absolutely just scorches the earth in his Harvard address. Like he doesn't leave any baseboard unflipped over, but he opens it by, by saying, you know, the, the, the motto for Harvard university is Veritas, which in Latin means truth. So that's very interesting. That's a very interesting motto to have. And he says, the truth is seldom pleasant. It's almost invariably bitter. Know that I come to you today, not as an enemy, but as a friend. 
And then, of course, like I say, he he proceeds to just completely pick apart every uh, every tenant of then modern Western society. Um, but he opens up with that that concept of like, you say you want truth, huh? Okay, well, I'm going to give you truth but it's not going to, it's going to go down hard. It's not going to be a, an easy pill to swallow. Um, and you know, I know, with, I know a podcaster who's keenly interested in truth, beauty and goodness. Who is that? The, the great transcendentals and, and Solzhenitsyn uh, also said in one of his major addresses that yes, in fact, beauty will save the world. Yes. Yeah. And why is that the case? Because people have thrown up so many words and put together so many propositions that finding the truth of any one of them is just arduous. And and so many people have claimed to be good but turn out to be anything but. But it, yeah. it's, it's harder to counterfeit beauty, much harder to counterfeit beauty. Yeah. And so perhaps it's beauty that will save the world. And if there really is a unity of the transcendentals, each of them being one of the faces of being, then we'll go from beauty to truth to goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what is... That's what the American Solidarity Party is doing. <laughs> this is the last page of the platform. It was an invisible ink. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I mean, that. You know, all during this conversation, I've just kept thinking, like, how do we how do we sell this kind of a party to an American populace that is, you know, just like constantly all up on their phone and constantly looking to be distracted and to be entertained? How do we how do we communicate these things that seem to to at the very best, go in the complete opposite direction of, of the flow of society. Because, you know, if, you, if you're a candidate and you're up here talking about, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, Solzhenitsyn, Havel, like you're going you're gonna to hear crickets and see tumbleweeds real quick. But the principles that you get from studying these figures, the principles that like it or not, American society is largely founded upon, um, at least philosophically, if not directly. These are principles that we need to that we need to be in touch with in some way. How do we like how do we sell these ideas to to people who claim to want them, but who seem to be caught up in a system that is actively steering them away from them. Well, subject. <laughs> well, I think that uh, probably the best route to go is to have paradigm cases. Mm. Uh, leaders who are clear in what they say that uh, can serve as examples of policies that are clear and that don't fudge and make those policies public. And uh, we also need all of us in the party uh, 
a resiliency. Mm. Uh, there's no reason apart from that absolutely amazing grace that we should imagine that we're somehow going to succeed. I take Solzhenitsyn. The more his position became clear, the less popular he became. Yeah. Uh, the more Mother Teresa's position became clear, she spoke at Harvard, mm -hmm. uh, the more somebody like uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens was drawn to uh, yeah. make a mockery of her. Yeah. Uh, but is there precedent for that? There certainly is. Um, that that's uh, that's the Lord Jesus and the precedent there. Yeah. Uh, so there's this view, and we're talking about how to present the party. There is this view that it's always better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. Now, my own position is, best of all, is both to light a candle and curse the darkness. Sure. Both <laughs> and. Yeah. Yeah. Now, some of us, Jeremy, not you, you're a counselor. <laughs> some of us have a special charism in darkness cursing. <laughs> and so we've given ourselves... <laughs> we give ourselves a certain space to do that. Yeah. But I, I think we should do both. Yeah. Well, Dorothy I mean, Day, on the other hand, Dorothy Day, on the other hand, I always said, you got 100% of your time, 90% of the time, you should be doing something constructive, and 10% of the time, you should be aging more uh, nonviolently. Uh, and that's why I can only do 10% of the time. Uh, you ought to be so clear that nobody could possibly miss your point. Yeah. Now, on that note, I can give you another California anecdote. Please. The last time around in the gubernatorial campaign, I think when all is said and done, we had around 4,000 votes. This time, we've just passed 7,000 votes. Newsom had in his war chest $80 million. He also had the president come to campaign for him on the last day. Yeah. We spent $6,000. Eighty million versus 6000 David and Wow. Goliath? I see Goliath. Where's David? <laughs> but it was. However, this time we've gone over 7,000. Mm -hmm. That's good. But now here's a reality check. Among the other candidates in the recall, there was one who got three times the number of that vote we got. Mm -hmm. And what's her name? Widely known in California. Angeline, the billboard queen. Hmm. And Angeline's campaign, as has her campaign in the past, consisted of driving around uh, fairly scantily clad, as she ages, she's less scantily clad, in a, <laughs> in a pink, in a pink luxury vehicle. Jeez. That's it. 
No debates for Angeline. Although she did suggest, and this is the only policy suggestion that I saw that she made, there ought to be a three strikes law for abusive police officers. Once, twice. Yeah, you've talked three times now. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that was it. <laughs> that takes us back to macho land and violence and the like. Yeah. So we have to know where we are. We're in California and we have $6,000 and that other guy has $80 million and Angela. And there was one other candidate who did quite well, and his last name was on paper Stoner. What's <laughs> <sighs> on the front page of today's LA Times? It's so easy to do this if you're in California. Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals mm-hmm. has noted a dramatic increase in animal poisoning. What's caused it? Animals are more and more eating uh, cannabis-infused crunchies. Yeah. Yeah. That's... I I had a friend, uh, I guess more of an acquaintance. Um, I have a few friends from college that I still keep in touch with. And when I was interviewing my first guest for the show uh, back in July... I was, you know, I was talking to her. We were talking about her new book and I kept getting these text messages from my, a couple of my friends who told me that this other friend had to take his dog to the emergency room because their dog got a hold of the the friend's edibles and ate like the entire bag. And it's just like, was the good time worth it? Like, was it, was it really worth that's unintended consequences? We we uh, we're 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 more interested in doing something because we can to stop and think about if we actually should. That's what it seems to me. Yeah. So, I like to end on positive notes because we've we've taken we we've talked about some some dour things which i love i'm i this is my bread and butter i this is where my mind is like 90 percent of the time but yeah i like you, you said earlier uh you know but you're you're a counselor it's like why do you think i became a counselor because like i i'm comfortable in the darkness now let's get you out of there and light that candle while cursing the darkness um well, you know what chesterton said Oh, gosh, he said so many things. That's right. But with regard to that vexed question, why it is that angels can fly? His why? answer? What? Because they take themselves so very lightly. <laughs> that reminds me of uh, that reminds me of one of my f- favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. Uh, Joy is the serious business of heaven. Mm. It's great. I, I do love Chesterton, although I find Chester, I can only take Chesterton in small doses because he's just so, he gets so caught up in being Chesterton sometimes that it's, it can be hard to, hard to keep up with him. But I, I want to, I want to end on it on a, on a hopeful note, if there is a hopeful note to end on. So what are you optimistic about? And, and, 
in California politics and American society and, and whatever, what are you optimistic about? This is the American solidarity point of optimism. Okay. I'm glad that while the party is aware in some cases of some of its intellectual roots, the party wasn't put together by intellectuals. It's not kept going by intellectuals. It's kept going by people who are, well, computer programmers, or in some cases, lawyers, or in some cases, physicians. It's a party that is absolutely essential. There's a crying need for it, and it didn't depend on uh, intellectuals to put it together. And it certainly, it certainly did not depend on big money to put it together. Our biggest single donation, our biggest single donation, and I'm glad we got it, was from a philanthropist. It's the only donation we got from a philanthropist, and it was only $1,000. Mm. So I'm happy that we can run a party with what people used to refer to as the man on the clapamonibus, and we can run a party without big money or even middle-sized money, yeah. and that we're, we're doing better as we go along. That's what I'm happy about. Yeah. And in larger context, I think there are plenty of people like those people that started the party and kept it going, plenty of people in America, and I think a lot of them are more engaged now politically than they ever have been before. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a good thing to be optimistic about um and so with that i guess i will end our conversation for now i'd love to have you <clears throat> back on to talk more about ways that we could blow ourselves up with nukes or any other uh any other of the topics that we didn't get to cover today i'm glad that we didn't because i really enjoyed this conversation where can people find you well, uh, Google American Solidarity Party, and you'll get to the treasure of the platform on which you've taken notes, <laughs> but you'll get a lot of other things, too. Uh, what's been going on lately, what's coming up pretty soon, yeah. and in many states, you could just Google American Solidarity Party of, for example, mm-hmm. the American Solidarity Party of California. Mm-hmm. you can do that okay well james i i very much appreciate your time this afternoon uh i really enjoyed the conversation and i look forward to having you on again sometime all right i look forward to tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> see you then all right. all right thanks godspeed Jeremy. you too